was a leak in the boiler room. The poor, the lame, the blind. Who were the ones that we kept in charge? Killers, thieves, and lawyers. God's away, God's away, God's away on business, business. God's away, God's away, God's away on business, business. Welcome to the Armageddon and Retrospect podcast. Today, let's talk about the preaching work, specifically why the preaching work was the worst. I mean, just the absolute worst. Am I right? Now, if you were never Jehovah's Witness and you think it's annoying and awful and dumb when Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and you have to try to figure out how to get out of that interaction or avoid it, whatever your your attack is, um, you should try being on the other side of the door as a Jehovah's Witness. I would say the majority of Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your door don't actually want to be there. Like if you actually pin down Jehovah's Witnesses, except for a small minority of zealots, most of them will would, if they could, in a moment of transparency and honesty, tell you that they do not enjoy the preaching work. Now I spent thousands of hours doing it and I tried to convince myself that I could somehow enjoy it that it was something good that I should be doing it that I could make it fun somehow and I never could convince myself of that uh, what it was for me was complete anxiety stress like gut-wrenching social awkwardness a lot of the time and that was just within the car group of Jehovah's Witnesses. No, well, yeah, sometimes, but especially just imagine just going to strangers' doors trying to talk about God and going door to door to door to door to door for hours doing that. Uh, never got easier for me. Um, I think I did at some point improve in my skill with it, maybe, but still it didn't improve the experience at all for me. Did not improve the experience at all for me. So I just want to talk about this a little bit. And I'm sure if you were a Jehovah's Witness, you can relate to the things I'm going to say. So for me, it was started from basically birth. I was born into it. So as a child, I've talked about this a little bit, but my earliest memories are just being forced to wake up early on a Saturday morning, get dressed up, put on your little business suit you know you have your blazer with the shoulder pads <laughs> in it the uh clip-on tie with that little metal clip digging into your fucking neck you know like right in your jugular and you a little other portfolio with magazines in it and because i was you know what first second grade age probably at this point i'm having these memories um I had these cheaply made Watchtower and Awake magazines that the organization printed, and those would all be kind of messy in my bag because I was a kid. I didn't know any better. And you kind of have all of that stuff, and then you get summoned down to a breakfast table where you get served, in my case, probably grape nuts or shredded wheat, not the sweetened kind. That way just my parents could make sure the roof of my mouth was all cut up before I had to go out and try to talk about God with people. And then we would do something called the daily text, which was 
a <laughs> just like there's a different column for each day of the year and it has the scripture and then the watchtower organization's commentary brief commentary on the scripture so we'd read that my dad would ask us questions about it and if we weren't paying attention then we might even catch a good spanking or something before we <laughs> get out the door just to make that day that much more fun and then we drive to the kingdom hall and our dodge caravan and pull up and there's a bunch of kind of i mean as a kid it was and this didn't really change that much but it was usually like the strange mix of families but also a lot of older people and kind of strange people i, I would say <laughs> there's like a kind of concentration of just strange people like not completely socially there you know <laughs> interactive there was something off a lot of the time and you do the daily text again and then they break you into car groups and that was like you just hope you didn't get stuck with too many weirdos in your Dodge Caravan. Uh, but, you know, it was inevitable that would happen. And then you get this territory card, which has a map on it, which is the neighborhood you're going to preach in. And if you're lucky, you had a territory that was like an hour drive out. <laughs> I lived in northern Michigan. It was very, you know, the territory was spread out. So if you were lucky, you would get this territory that would take 45 minutes to drive to. And so you could waste a lot of your time driving and then the houses would be spaced out really far apart too so that was like the best case scenario um although that's typically where you found like the people that pulled guns on you uh because you drive up like this four mile long driveway and obviously they moved there because they didn't want visitors and so there's always some crazy like bearded guy who would show you a shotgun um anyways uh, that happened a few times uh, and told you to get lost, never come back. Okay, so, but then there was the other moments circling back where you're working in town where it's just it's a three-minute drive from the Kingdom Hall where you just met, and then you're going house to house to house to house to house, just working whole blocks, boop, 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 and hoping that your schoolmates don't see you, but inevitably it would happen in the small town I lived in. And it was just torture. Oh, my God, it was torture. And the only silver lining sometimes is what, you know, when this is called coffee break, which is self-explanatory, where you'd actually maybe stop at McDonald's and get a cup of coffee, something to eat, a donut, something like that. You get this break, and it was like, you, you were just waiting. As a kid, you could never suggest it, so you had to wait for the adults to hopefully um, say, I need to use a bathroom or I could go for a cup of coffee. And then it's like, oh, thank God I get coffee break. At least I get like a half an hour um, reprieve from this because <laughs> this is awful. And then, but then you would go back out afterwards too. And then you hope after coffee break, we do things called return visits. That's where you go back on somebody that was supposedly interested to try to find them. And sometimes the return visits would be like on different sides of the county. And so, and it, it, this is just goes to show you that the adults subconsciously were trying to fill time too, right? Like they don't want to be doing this house to house stuff either. So as soon as they could switch over to return visits and drive all over kingdom come to fill up time, they would do it. <laughs> and then that was it. You know, that was your, like your three hours on Saturday, sometimes an hour or two hours on Sunday after the you know church or the meeting on Sunday. And that was without fail pretty much every weekend. Like, that was not optional. As a kid, you could not opt in or opt out of that. It was not a democracy. Uh, no, 
that was required. Like this is what we do on the weekends, right? So it was just, unless rarely got like a vacation from it and we could not do it. But other than that, consistent. And that was just kind of the overall feel of it. And a lot of this applies to adulthood too, in a way, like just waking up early on the weekends, even as an adult and getting dressed and getting around and getting ready and doing all that same stuff did not get any better for me. It didn't get any better for me. I I went from clip-on ties to tying my own tie and that's about the only fucking difference there was, right? Okay. And just as a side point, one of my greatest joys in life these days is waking up on a Saturday morning and not putting on a tie. Waking up on a Sunday morning and not putting on a tie and not going out to talk to people about God and not preaching. I just sit there with my coffee and I just marinate in my happy juices about not having to go out my door and try to convince people that they're going to die Armageddon if they don't listen to me. Okay, back to what I was saying. So now I talked about people pulling a gun on you. That was rare. It was rare. It happened. I'm sure there's some trauma in there lodged in there for me as a kid having someone pull a gun on me, but whatever. Uh, but there was different types of reactions you got in the ministry too that made it pretty awful. One is the you'd walk up and you know ring the doorbell and knock, and you would have the person that would like peek out the curtain. And I just remember my dad be like, oh, yeah, they're, you know, it's 9.30 on Saturday morning. Maybe they need a little extra time to come to the door. And then you just stand there and wait and wait and wait. And then <laughs> sometimes my dad would make me ring the doorbell again, even though obviously they're hiding. Like, they do, they, they saw you, they know you're there, and they're just not going to open the door. They're going to ignore that you're at their house. And rightfully so. Why wouldn't you? Like, why do you want to talk, like, go out and, like, host or, or receive these strangers who you haven't invited. They've been showing up unannounced on the weekend when you're trying to enjoy your time off to waste your time talking about this stuff. Okay, so you, and we called those <laughs> home but hidings, right? That was, that was like, the, that was the witness, home but hiding. Uh, so you had that, just the people that looked at you, they ignored you. Um, the luckiest thing you could have was just a plain not at home. That's just where you knocked and no one's at home. That was the best. Not at home, that's what I prayed for every time I went, that there would just be, no one there. Then you would have the irate person, not necessarily the person that pulled the gun. They were a little bit more psychopath, psychopathic. Like the person that pulled the gun wasn't usually angry and yelling. They just kind of quietly showed you the gun and then <laughs> actually quite mildly asked you to leave the property. But then there was people that were irate that didn't have guns. So they were like, get the fuck off my porch. What the fuck are you doing here? Oh, fuck you. Like, <laughs> you just had those people that come out just like absolutely guns blazing. They could care less, you know, whether you're, a, even if you're like a nine, 10 year old kid, they just would unleash on you. And I'm not, I'm not okaying that type of behavior, but you just, you know, just imagine being a kid and just have somebody just going off on you like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, oh my God. And uh, it just, you know, you, it was already bad enough. I already had so much anxiety and my heart would just be sinking just knowing somebody was coming to the door. And then you had those experiences. And, you know, the, the adults are just like, all right, next door, next door. Like, no, you know, I never, personally, I never got like a pep talk. Like, they didn't like take me to the car and say, hey, let's just take a break. You just got yelled at. No, next door. Like, let's go to the next door. And you, you hey, knock on this door again. Maybe they're nicer. 
and you're just dying on the inside, just dying, you know, you're like, God, is this, am I going to get the same reaction at this door? And I, I thought the irate person was like the worst one you could get. And then, then you find that the hyper-religious person, right? Those are actually the worst. You know why? Because a hyper-religious person invites you into the house usually like oh i mean not always but a lot of times be hey come on in come on in i love talking about god and that's when i was like oh shit oh shit here we go because he knew you're going to be sitting there for about two and a half hours arguing with a fundamentalist born again christian of course i was a fundamentalist too but didn't recognize myself as such and it's like holy shit like it just was Oh, it was awful. It was awful. It was just like you got nowhere. You got nowhere. It was just you just both it's just two hours of talking past each other, you know. Just brutal. And then besides that person, you would have just the crazy people. There was always crazy people. Um whether it was a guy that had like a seashell he would blow on <laughs> to summon the spirits to the meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that happening. Like he actually had a seashell that like sounded like a trumpet if he blew, <laughs> blew on it. <laughs> it was like, and he had like on the fireplace mantle. He's like, let me just summon the spirits. Maybe he was just fucking with us. I don't know. But <laughs> he blew the seashell. And you're like, oh shit, here we go. And, uh, you know, it's just crazy people. The conspiracy theorists, like tinfoil hat. And, it's it's crazy when you're the Jehovah's Witness in the room, but you actually are still the most sane person there. That's just crazy that that would happen. And it just, that for me kind of, is just an overview of the preaching work. It just, um, was so, again, just so anxiety-inducing. Just, I, I, I dreaded it. I absolutely dreaded it. I dreaded it the morning I'd wake up and I'd be dreading it. And and worse, I had a job that like I worked kind of in the middle of the night, and I was pioneering, you know, preaching seventy hours a month or more. And I'd get off from work after working from two a.m. on, and take a shower and get dressed, and go right out trying to talk to people after you know having three hours of sleep the night before, and just try to go right out and talk to people, and just out all day. I was a pioneer, just. 9 o'clock at night sometimes, 10 o'clock at night, visiting people, evening witnessing as they call it. Ugh. You want to talk about torture, evening witnessing? Imagine showing up at everybody's house. The same. It's like the same dynamics are in play, only now everybody's at home. Their kids are at home from school, and they're trying to serve dinner to their family. And bing pong, Jehovah's Witnesses are here. Great. That's great. Who are you, you know, you get a if you get a, an anonymous doorbell ring at seven PM, all you can think is that somebody you know died in a car accident, right? Like that's the policeman ringing the doorbell. Who else comes to your fucking door these days? Like people don't do that anymore. I I know back in the day people sell encyclopedias door to door and Bibles and all kinds of shit, you know, but in this modern day who shows up at your house unannounced and rings the doorbell to talk to you or try to sell you something? Nobody. I mean, it's just it's so 
rare. It's like census people and Jehovah's Witnesses. And I remember one time as a Jehovah's Witness having a census person show up at my house and I was angry about it. I was like, how dare they show up at my house unannounced? <laughs> Who is this on my property? Mm. <laughs> of course, you know, you don't connect those dots. You don't connect them. So anyways, I just want to talk about some features of the preaching work. And I still, again, every day I'm not preaching to me is like, no matter what happens to me that day, um, I could sprain an ankle, falling down a flight of stairs and have a concussion and um, be carried in the ambulance that crashes into the side of a building. And to me, it would still probably be better than the preaching work would be uh, just because physical pain just would pale in comparison to the psychological torture that was preaching door to door. So that's my take on a preaching work. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Armageddon podcast at gmail.com or on Instagram at Armageddon podcast. There's a leak in the boiler room. The poor, the lame, the blind. Who are the ones that we kept in charge? Killers, thieves, and lawyers. God's away. God's away. God's away.